What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. All right, what's up everyone? Today we are joined by the powerful Aaron Blasky. Aaron is currently a fractional CMO advising startups and scale-ups, currently working with Jamieson Law, Ridgebase, Heirloom, and Staffy. And before going back to freelance, Aaron spent four years leading marketing teams at Fellow, a SaaS platform for meeting productivity, as well as Lspark, a SaaS accelerator. But Aaron's start in marketing goes further than that. In 2004, she launched a virtual assistant business. She was one of the first to do it and later pivoted that a couple of years later into a marketing agency where she worked with some amazing brands like Disney, Microsoft, and Ford. And she's worked with a bunch of Hollywood actors and authors and speakers and helped them craft their brands. And she currently runs also a no fluff tactical newsletter with 10K plus subscribers. She has a huge Twitter audience topping 36K people. You probably know her from Twitter. She's also a TEDx speaker. Her writing has been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur, Adweek, and the Wall Street Journal. She's also a postgrad instructor, an entrepreneur mentor, and a mental health advocate. Holy shit, Aaron. How do you get anything done with everything that you have going on? But thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much. Honestly, when you read that off, I'm like, really? <laughs> Did I do all of that? <laughs> Doesn't feel like me most days, <laughs> to be honest. It's awesome. Like, I love your your site. It like breaks down your your bio super well. Like, someone just landing on your site like gets instant like idea of what your story was, like how you got into like freelancing back. So, uh, yeah, it was super easy to to write this intro. But um, yeah, super pumped to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. You two are two of my favorite humans and marketers. So I'm <laughs> really looking forward to, uh, yeah, going, seeing where the conversation goes. Amazing. Yeah. John and I often like have this debate of freelance versus in-house marketing. Um, mm-hmm. Myself, my experience is mostly in-house. I've dabbled with kind of like moonlighting in previous roles and uh, previous to my job, like I did some freelancing, but for the most part, like my consulting experience is, is pretty limited. So I have a lot of questions from like the pros and cons side of, mm-hmm. of like the, the freelance side of world, but JT did a stint in, in consulting. So he's, he's He's got uh, a bit more of the the double background there. So you spent uh, four, three, four years at Ellsberg and Fellow. So you did the in-house yeah. for a couple of years. You really saw like the chaos of startup marketing and wearing all the different hats. And then mm-hmm. you went back to freelance. So talk about like the decision of why you went back to freelance and uh, yeah. yeah, walk us through that a bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and so I guess uh, I know you mentioned it as well, but so prior to going to Elspark, I spent uh, just under 15 years free, uh, freelancing as well. So I started started that company in 2004. And honestly, I didn't really know much else. Like that was one of my very early first jobs. And, you know, I kind of I started in the workforce and I was like, I dabbled in it. And I thought right away, like, mm, no, this isn't for me. Like, I think I just want to try going, you know, going off and doing something on my own. And so after I launched that business, I really just spent the next 15 years figuring things out as I went. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of magic to that. Like there's a lot of things that come along with that where you're getting to do work that's really different and interesting and exciting. Uh, you're you know you're sort of spread across all these different projects and these different focus areas. 
And I really honestly loved it. Um, now, that said, there's also a lot of, uh, you know, negatives that can come along with freelancing as well. So obviously, you know, having to like find your own business all the time and making sure that you always have things in the pipeline and, you know, revenue, depending on where you're at in your career, like you may, you may not have that consistency or whatnot. So there's a lot of, you know, there's pros, there's cons for sure. I think one of the biggest like uh, things that people say often when they think about freelancing is like you have so much freedom, <laughs> and like I think that's probably the biggest myth uh, mm, yeah. because no, you work probably sometimes harder than you would in a <laughs> normal job. The only difference is instead of like capping out at a salary, you actually have uh, a higher earning potential. So I think that's right. like the only benefit. Anyway, so what ended up happening though is when I was consulting um, and towards the end of those kind of 14, 15 years, I started consulting with Elspark and honestly fell in love with like the community, the work they were doing. As a startup accelerator, obviously they were surrounded by all these companies and it was really very similar to what I was doing. And the main difference, which is kind of hilarious now, but the main difference was that I had worked like by myself in a home office, remote, 14 years and now I was getting to go into an office and be surrounded by all these startups and these entrepreneurs and I really loved it and I was sort of you know at the time like really craving like working back inside of an office with physical you know physical walls and real humans it's hilarious now that we're in the pandemic and I'm back <laughs> in this home office and I have been obviously for over a year um, however, I really just fell in love. So I decided to take a full-time job after consulting with them for a bit. And I think the reason I share this story is because I think one of the reasons I was able to go back full-time, you know, because it had been a very long time was because I actually consulted with them. I spent time there, mm -hmm. you know, I was able to see what the culture was like. I really got immersed before I committed full-time and uh, ended up joining, had a great time. And of course, because they're a B2B SaaS accelerator, I got bit by the B2B SaaS bug <laughs> and the opportunity at Fellow came up. And so decided to take that um, opportunity. And what I realized was that um, working in a, in a, you know, a B2B SaaS company, and this maybe isn't true in all companies, it's maybe not true in all positions, but I'll just speak obviously to my own experience. For me, there was not enough people focus. And so I was like very heads down, you know, building out campaigns, looking at analytics, building landing pages, writing copy, but everything was very this. It was very like heads down. I know people can't see what I'm doing, but essentially like <laughs> very heads down and very yeah. hyper focused. And there wasn't a lot of like the relationship side. And I had always had that you know, for the, my entire career, I was very, I was always talking to different clients or entrepreneurs. And I think what I realized over the year is that while we had a lot of success in that first year at Fellow, like I had a lot of success, like, you know, with the marketing team and, and as a company, we experienced a lot of success as well. I just really ultimately wasn't very happy, you know, and it's not, um, it's not to say that it was like that specific environment at all. Um, but really it was, it was me and the role and the fit. And I mean, I really needed to sort of ask myself as I was coming into the new year, you know, like, what am I missing? Truly, if I really think about it, like what's missing? And for me, it was that, um, that people angle, like the ability to have those relationships and, and really work intimately with human beings every single day beyond just like my small, you know, kind of marketing team. 
And uh, yeah, so in, in the beginning of this year, I decided to go back after, a, you know, three weeks into holidays and decided to quit my job with literally <laughs> nothing lined up. Like, <laughs> I didn't have a plan, <laughs> you know, there was zero plan, but I quit and then I put it on LinkedIn that I had left and um, ended up with 70 plus phone calls in those first three weeks, uh, ended up with a full roster of clients, which I in hindsight, this was such a bad idea, but I onboarded, you know, four all at the exact same time, um, <laughs> took on a PR comms project that was very high profile at the exact same time and was setting up like my, you know, incorporation. I was setting up business bank accounts and I'm like fielding speaking requests. Anyway, it was chaos. So I don't have a plan right now. It's sort of just like take each day as it comes. But I think for me, the biggest, yeah, all that to say, I know that's a really long answer, but all that to say, I think like the biggest transition point for me and the, when I explored the pros and cons was really about fit. You know, it's about mm -hmm. getting back to doing work I love, having the ability to pick and choose my clients, um, having the ability to try on culture before I ever consider joining full time again. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that for me personally, it just really works. One of the, the, there's so many questions that I have that I want to ask now. Um, yeah, let's I don't even go. know where to, I don't even know where to start. So let me, let me just kind of rapid fire a few of them. Sure. I think, I think for freelancers, one of the, the things that happens when you're in-house is you, Phil said it on the podcast before, you see the consulting bill come in and you went, oh man, I want to do that. But you know, you just mentioned something really interesting, which is setting up that incorporation, the bank accounts, like mm -hmm. for somebody who's about to make that shift themselves, like. How how big of a shift is it to set up these this corporation and, and all your accounting and all the legal crap that goes along with it before you even get to do marketing with an awesome client? Yeah. So I I mean I didn't do it perfectly, like meaning like I actually took on clients before I was even incorporated. Um the only difference, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not an accountant, just preface this, you know, so any of this is not <laughs> advice. This is literally just like me sharing my experience. Um, but I took on that work even before I was incorporated, knowing that I would have to just like, you know, claim that differently on my taxes. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm getting the incorporation, but for now it's fine. So I, I went ahead and just did that. Um, you know, other people want to have all, all the foundations and systems in place, and that's fine. Um, but what I what, what I was doing is, as I was onboarding those clients, I did reach out to my lawyer and um, you know got the incorporation papers started. Uh, the cost of that, just for anyone know like that wants to know, it's anywhere from maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars to do that. Um, you know, and then I reached out to my accountant, which I had used in the past. And I was like, Hey, I'm starting a business. This is all happening like mm -hmm. in real time, need your help. Um, need an HST number, you know, need all these different things. And, uh, called up the bank, you know, was like, need a business bank account again. Got that, got that in place, got the business credit card. Um, so yeah, so it, it I think it's, it's one of those things I think pe some people will definitely move into these. Um, situations where they want to like have the foundation in place, they want to have it all perfect, then they'll take on clients and then they'll move through. Mm -hmm. That's probably recommended. Um, <laughs> but if you're me and you thrive in chaos and you actually never do anything very linearly or very, um, you know, on a, on a normal path, we'll, we'll say, uh, then you just do it all at the same time. Yep. <laughs> it is just like yep. chaos. <laughs> 
I think I think there's definitely a learning curve for folks, right? On I know when I set up my own corp, like it was very similar to you. Like I was taking on clients and you know uh, going to conferences while I'm t on the phone with my accountant and lawyer to figure this stuff out. <laughs> and it's just like this giant, you know, uh, uh, learning curve for people to to go past. So I think it's it's humanizing to hear like, hey, it's normal that this is confusing. This is a lot of work to be setting up, and you know, it's not not all ro you know rainbows and butterflies on the other side of the consulting. Coin, um, as you mentioned, one of the things from my own consulting experience that actually led me back to going in house was this idea of going in depth on projects, right? Um, and I think this is purely like a bias or a psychological thing for myself, but I really enjoy like the long term project where I can put the, you know, brick by brick build something up. But there's something to say around the variety that you know, variety is a spice of life. Talk a little bit about how you know if that's a factor or or what your perspective is on that. Yeah, that's actually a great question and something I've done a lot of um, introspection about as well, just trying to figure out like, what is it about full-time employment that eventually I get really bored with, right? Like, and I'm sure like anyone listening to this in the future that's considering hiring me for a full-time job is going to be like, red flags, red flags, but it's fine. Um, I don't know if I'll ever work in a full-time job again anyway. So um for me, what ended up happening, uh, you know, in, in many of my roles, not just my most recent role, but what en ends up happening for me personally is that I love the art of the start. Like I love the beginning phases where like I, you know, nothing makes me happier than coming into a, a brand new company. Um, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're like scaling up revenues, but they just haven't put a lot of systems yet in place around their marketing. They don't have like you know, fancy campaigns, they're not doing content, they're not yet doing social, um, you know, they're not, they're just not tapped into any of the potential that exists from a marketing perspective. And I love coming in on that phase. And I love building all of that. I mean, that's basically what I did at Fellow alongside the, you know, um, the marketing team as well, is when I came in, like they had a three page website, you know, like they had some content going, but really, you know, it was about building that strong kind of solid foundation and I love it. And so mm -hmm. what happens though when you're in a full-time role is that eventually the foundation is built and then you're, you know, just going through some of the motions. And yes, you can bring in new campaigns, you can bring in like new ideas, um, but when you also find things that work really, really well, you do also don't want to just like throw that out, you know, you want to yeah. keep going with it. And so, um, for me, it's usually in that moment when I get a little bit more bored, when it's just like, okay, rinse, repeat. Now anyone could do this. Like I wrote the playbook, awesome, you know, go off and, and have fun with it. Uh, that's usually when I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. And I find with consulting, what I do like is I can actually go deep with a client. So I have like some clients where I work 10 hours a week, which is actually like, doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it does let me, you know, kind of really dig in. Um, and I get to get them set up and I get to eventually either subcontract or, you know, outsource to others or potentially hire in-house for them. And, and then I get to like either, let's say, you know, find other things I can do with that client. Maybe it's like moving into business development or partnerships or whatever, or I get to then move on right to like mm -hmm. the next project where I get to start all over again and start in that beginning phase. And, um, so for me, it, was, it took a lot to, for me to just realize that I'm not a monotonous worker. Not to say that every full-time role is monotonous. I'm not <laughs> saying that either. Um, but the minute it becomes that, I, yeah. I have a harder time. Yeah. 
some people that's I'm, super cool and i think it's so important to recognize like where you are best in an organization yes. and there's nothing wrong with it we all every startup needs somebody who starts the fire right yes yeah. and if you're yeah. good at starting fires go start fires and get yeah. there i love off. how you put that the the yeah. art of the start i think the you said. art of the start that's a guy kawasaki <laughs> yeah. book title so i can't claim okay. it <laughs> but it is a great a great art of the start <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's super cool. Like it, it's it's a cool spin on like the the argument that folks say that you know freelance work you don't have as much control over picking like the, the the hats that you get to wear in a company and like sometimes like you have to accept this client work and it's like something that you're not super excited about but you just got to do it because like this month you didn't get as much revenue as, as mm-hmm. usually but. I like how you're focusing um, your specific projects around like the starting phase, because especially like in startup companies, there's so many different hats you can wear as a consultant when it's like a blank slate, right? Like getting to know the the, the company and the customers a little bit. And that kind of like steers you into the channel or like where Mm -hmm. you want to set a foundation from. So that's super cool advice. Like if you're still really keen on wearing multiple hats, freelancing, like focus on early stage type of projects. Yes. There's no shortage of work to do in, in early stage <laughs> companies either. And the nice thing too is like you can in a, in a lot of ways systemize a bunch of those things as a freelancer or a consultant. So, you know, for example, I have a content brief, you know, outline as one example. I'm just giving like a very high level example. So whenever we're writing content that's, that's uh, you know, let's say it's more like SEO focused, I have a specific kind of brief outline that I can use and I can literally copy paste it to any single client. You know, I'm not having to reinvent the wheel or like rebuild a lot of these systems. And so for me, it lets me actually be insanely more effective for the client because we're not figuring this stuff out on like as we go. Um, mm-hmm. And we get to tap into resources and things that I already have. Um, I think the one key I would say, just going back to what you're saying about kind of looking for your next contracts and things, the way that I did it this time, and I'm going to, you know, and I, I would advise anyone that can do this to do this, um, you know, make sure that you really bill for bill, bill your rates at, a, at the rate that's so comfortable that you actually don't need a full-time, you know, roster of clients. Like you don't need to fill 40 hours a week. I probably only need to fill 20 hours a week to be on par with my salary. And then anything else above that is just like gravy, you know, like at that point it's like great. But I think like keeping it more realistic for me this time around, around like, okay, like what do, where, where should I set the baseline has actually been a lot more helpful. Very cool. Something you, sorry, John, go for I was going to go back to, to the start, to the start, because I I actually find this fascinating. Like this idea of, you know, you kind of mentioned around playbooks. I I actually have a question around how you productize your services as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is like the, what's the number one mistake you think other than not hiring a marketer do, do startup founders make in that early stage? Probably waiting too long to market in general. Mm -hmm. So what I see happen, and this happens like so often, but usually what ends up happening is a startup will start. You know, they're, they're going along, they're building a product, uh, they're usually building it in isolation. And this could be a product or a service. I'm going to say product just for ease, but like, you know, we'll call this like uh, transferable. So, you know, they're, they're going along, they're building this thing, they're building it in a bubble. They're not engaging anyone in the process outside of their like internal team. You know, then they get to a point where it's ready. They have an MVP or whatever they feel comfortable sharing. And then they bring it to the world and they wonder why nobody cares. You know, they're like, <laughs> where... Where are the leads? Where are the signups? Why don't we have like a whole like, you know, community of raving fans ready for this? And it's like you did zero work to get anyone yeah. as amped up as you are about your thing. The classic like, 
classic engineering founder, right? Yeah. Like I spent yeah. three years building this product and now I've released it, but like, where the hell is everyone? Oh shit. I guess yeah. like marketing is something I need to focus on. Yes. And, and they've typically built the product for themselves and not their end user. And I see that happen a lot. Like I'll see it happen, honestly, all the time in software companies where I'll ask a question about like, what made you decide to do this feature? And it'll be like, well, we really wanted it in house. And I'm like, did you talk to a customer? Like, I don't know, do they want this? And did you even build it with like them in mind and how they work? And does it tie into workflows? And anyway, so I think um, that's the biggest mistake I see them make is they wait. They wait too long. Um, they don't give people a chance to get emotionally invested the same way they are. And then they don't have anyone to actually market it to once they get there. So what I try to do with even the, co the companies that I work with that are maybe a little premature on certain, let's say they're not quite ready to share something or you know, they're still in that building phase is I get them started on things like content you know, SEO, list building, you know, starting to build a community, sharing a little bit, like building in public a little bit. You don't, that doesn't, that doesn't mean like opening the, you know, the mm -hmm. curtain and showing them everything, but starting to see that and building that sort of FOMO, getting early feedback, talking to potential customers. Like there's so many things you can do. And I think uh, the biggest mistake I see them make is that they just wait too long way too long love it super good advice we actually had one of the questions from uh staffy i think one of your your clients peter asked uh what are some of the best strategies for early stage companies when when budgets mm. are, are pretty sparse so like some of the advice you touched on there is like don't wait until you have like a nice yeah. fully fledged mvp to to start talking in public about it like engage the community build in public uh i love that super good advice yeah and can we just also add to this that like can we make organic marketing sexier again because i really <laughs> feel that lately you know all of this the focus has been put on growth marketing performance marketing paid ads and like I read this like crazy stat like I think it came from Chamath like a VC who said 43% or 43 cents of every VC dollar goes back into Google and Facebook and I just like cannot stomach that because there's just so many things you can do from a from an organic marketing perspective that are you know so much more beneficial for you long term and build actual like fans versus just leads and like anyway mm -hmm. I get really um I get very spicy about the about <laughs> any marketer who wants to come into a startup and the first thing they want to do is like start spending you know five thousand dollars a day on paid ads and it's like mm, no don't do that <laughs> anyway it's so it it's That's so highly trans. It's so highly transactional, right? We want this instant gratification from what we're doing, and I I run into this all the time as an SEO. You know, people are like, "Oh, it takes so long to build up the value." It's like you're building value in the market. You're building brand yes. recognition. You're building a moat that nobody can cross. That moat. If you're yes. the expert in this space. Yeah. Is it worth taking six, 12 months to build this the right way? Or do you want to just piss away your money in Facebook ads and be, you know, another startup that goes, you know, down with the flames? But not to say that it's nothing for, for advertising, no, right? For you sure. can validate Absolutely. audiences. And, yeah. 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 And I do yeah. think it works. I just like, I also think organic is taking a little bit of a backseat to it because it's just like an easier thing to maybe, um, you know, to your point, see those early results. But the other thing I don't th think those startups are even monitoring, and this could be a whole other conversation, so I promise I won't tangent this or like go on a rant. But the other thing is like you also have to measure the effectiveness and the quality of the leads and the customers that are even coming through your paid mm -hmm. ads versus organic sources because 
they could have a higher churn rate. And honestly, the number of companies I've seen that aren't tracking, you know, the churn rate from from a channel is also mm -hmm. insane. So I can't even. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that could yeah, be a whole it's crazy. thing. <laughs> it's crazy. Every time I've worked with an attribution tool or vendor, it's the same result over and over again. It's almost boring where it's like, yeah, Google organic search comes in top, you know, referrals from other websites, top paid yep. advertising way at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. That's a tangent. <laughs> um, from from the client, like from from a from an agency or consulting side, I, one of the questions we got that I really like is just, uh, how do you set expectations with your with your clients? How do you make sure that they know what they're going to get delivered? Uh, how they're going to be happy with it? Mm -hmm. uh, and how do you set those boundaries to make sure that the the projects don't blow up? Because we know in consulting land, you can be expected <laughs> all of a sudden to be a wizard of marketing and to wave your hand and solve all problems. So, yeah. how how do you encounter this? Yeah, I think this is honestly one of the the most common issues. And, I, and honestly, I don't even think that this is necessarily unique to freelancing. I think actually managing expectations, even internal, if you're like an internal employee, is a, an enormous part of your job as a marketer. Like you're constantly having to set expectations with people because I've seen it time and time again where people hire marketing thinking it's the silver bullet, right? They're like, this one marketer is going to come into my company and they're going to just change everything and like turn it all around. And like, sure, they're going to have some impact, but we need to be realistic as well in terms of how long some of these things take and just like, mm -hmm. uh, anyway. So, but in freelancing, one of the things that I, I do is I'm very clear as much as humanly possible, like right from, from day one. So I'm clear about like what it is that I do, how I'm going to do it. You know, I outline that in a proposal usually um, in advance of even agreeing to the work. Um, I'm also, and like this could be like just the fact that I've, you know, done this for a long time now and I'm, I feel a bit more confident to be a little more assertive, but I'm also constantly reiterating a lot of those expectations um, over time as well. So let's say, for example, like I have a hard time booking same day calls. So if a client pings me on Slack and they're like, hey, do you have five minutes, right? Which is very mm -hmm. common. They, they have an idea. They want to chat. I get it. Um, but it's up to me to then say to them like, sorry, same day calls are hard. I'd prefer to book in advance, like if possible. Um, here's mm -hmm. the window I've, I've, you know, carved out to work on your stuff today. Um, happy to chat in that time. But otherwise, like, sorry, I can't do it now. And it's just about like having that open conversation and communication. I've never had a client get upset about it. I mean, maybe they're upset, like, you know, in quiet, um, but I don't think so because I think that they'd be, you know, uh, because I have that rapport with them and you build that over time, obviously, uh, I, I feel like they'd say something, but it really is just about like being very um, assertive, but also, um, you know, like knowing when to flex too, right? There's times where something's going to pop up and you have to like make it work. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's been really key for me. And then I think the other thing is, is just like having ongoing calls, like every week, you know, I schedule a call with my clients, we touch base, a lot of times where like a lot of their fear comes up, or they're maybe they're a little bit more of their sort of we'll call it struggles, is if they just have like, you know, an unknown, or if there's like, if, if it feels like work's going into a black hole, right? So if I can surface that um, as much as possible, and to be honest, I still use fellow um, as well. So, you know, nice. for all of my recurring meetings, I surface all of the work that I'm doing, things that, you know, are kind of happening, questions that I have um, in the agendas, they can go in and do it too. And it just like creates a level of transparency that um, really puts them at ease. So um, I think, 
all of those things are true, so setting expectations. And the, the only other thing I would add is make sure your rates are set at a, at a proper amount so that you don't feel like, um, you know, that you're getting pinched on anything ever. Mm -hmm. Like you want to feel mm -hmm. very comfortable with that. Uh, but also if you have a fixed project, um, this is what I do is I build in at least a 30% buffer on a, on a fixed cost project because they're never uh, what they seem for, you know, on a fixed cost project. Um, and so if I build in a 30% buffer, I'm always guaranteed to at least, uh, you know, I might, I might come out more like even, but it, I'll mm -hmm. never like lose money on the project. So. I think people also from a consulting perspective don't appreciate like how much of your time, yeah, you get paid for your marketing work, but you don't get paid for the relationship building that you have to do to recruit new clients. You don't get paid for the time that you got to spend setting up your corp and managing your taxes and filing HST every four months. Like there's there's a lot of overhead to running your own business. It's It looks really sexy on paper, but there's a lot to it, right? And you and I think you're really wise to offer the advice around setting rates that make, that make sense yes. uh, to, to run your whole business it's not just your practice your your specific marketing what advice do you have for folks who are who are on the precipice of going consulting and thinking about their rate like it, yeah. i know when i set my rate it was like whoa so uncomfortable to do that and now that i did it i was like i was you know undervalued for sure um, <laughs> so what advice do you do you have on that front yeah so the, the thing that i i have used in the past and it's worked really really well is that I've, I've um, and this is really great if you've never consulted before and you're kind of like, mm, I don't know what to do. So the first thing I would say is like chat with some other consultants for sure. You know, do some research online. There's so much access we have today. Like I didn't have this in 2004 because it was like, you know, pre-social, different, different web. Um, I didn't have the research. I couldn't just go Google like what does a virtual assistant make? Um, it just didn't, mm -hmm. wasn't there. However, today we have it. Like there's so much information and we have access to so many other people that are doing this. So just reach out and ask like, what are you charging? Like, do you mind sharing some rates? And I've done this with friends. I've done this with other consultants. Um, and in, in doing that, it's really surfaced for me like, okay, like this is a ballpark I could be comfortable in. So, you know, and, and for me, like, uh, you know, the rates for like a fractional CMO or anywhere from, it depends if you do a, a consultant or an agency, but it could be anywhere from 150 to $300 an hour. Like it's, it's a range, right? And then where yeah. you fit in that range honestly comes down to confidence. Like it comes down to the confidence that you have in your ability and also, um, you know, in the service delivery. So what I would say is, let's imagine you look it up and your range is something like, I don't know, it could be the same as that that I just said, but we'll say like, let's call it 50 to $100 an hour is like a, a, an average range. Um, if you don't feel confident right away, start your first client at 50. Like there's no harm. You don't have, you're not stuck there for life. Don't publish your rates, you know. Um, and then what I've done in the past is I've started a client there and then my next client, I just bumped it up like 10 bucks, yeah. you know, do I feel better now at, at $60 an hour, you know, and then I bumped it up again and I kept bumping it up until I hit a little bit of friction. And then I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm, I'm still not there because I'm actually okay pushing people a little past where they feel comfortable. Um, and then I went even higher. And then when I got to that point where it was now like a, an actual conversation or a negotiation, I was like, all right. <laughs> This is the spot because mm. um, people should feel slightly, it shouldn't just be an immediate yes, because you know, then that like, I mean, I guess it could be if they know your value, but like more often than not, if it's an immediate yes, you're probably billed too low. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's, it's kind of how I do it. Um, 
and then yeah, just like tweak it for like new new clients. Not not uh, don't raise the rates of your old clients like you know repetitively. Um, that's bad. Uh, but yeah, do it with new clients. That's great advice. Um, something that you touched on uh, a bit earlier that uh, I want to dive into is kind of like the the day to day between like how you split your tasks as mm-hmm. as a freelancer. Like you you touched a lot on like negotiation, negotiating your rates, like yeah. finding new clients and like that that relationship side of it. Like, would you say that like freelancing is kind of split up in in three buckets? Um, like one hunting for new um, new customers to like doing actual work for your existing customers and three like managing those relationships with those customers like how how different do you find that from your in-house role like mm. you still had the part of doing the work and you still had the part of like um, like interfacing with existing departments and other people on the team but you mm-hmm. didn't have to like find new customers for your your day-to-day work right so like um, do you spend your time like do you spend more time doing the actual work like are your hours longer when you're freelancing versus in-house can you touch on that a bit yeah yeah that's a great question so I I think my I mean the way that I've structured my own day might be very different from how other freelancers have structured theirs but I I can share like what I do and um and then people could maybe you know take what's valuable from it but um so what my day is is structured between you know working on client work for sure and so uh what I've done with that is I take on different projects at different um, hourly rate commitments per week or per month. But like at the same time, I don't actually bill on an hourly rate, if that makes sense. Like I, meaning I'm not providing my clients with an itemized list of things that I do. Um, because in many ways, uh, you know, if I was to do that, I'm very fast and you know, now that I've been doing this for 20 years, if I build to the minute, let's say like, I'm only undervaluing myself. Like there's a value to what I do. Um, so anyway, all that to say, like, I don't, I definitely don't like itemize my, my services. However, um, it is helpful for me to kind of understand like, what is the approximate time commitment that I'm, you know, need to sort of think in my mind. Um, and I've been doing this for so long that like, I can think about the time commitment and what is typically going to be able to be like, uh, delivered within that time commitment. Um, and so I, I block that out on my calendar, like the client works, um, or the client work goes into my calendar as blocks. That's just more for me to kind of, um, have that, at least the guideposts, it gives them the expectation of like when I'm going to be on their project. Um, I'm still checking in on their Slack, like throughout the day, if it goes off, I still click over, I read the message, I'll respond even if I'm not in their block. Um, but in terms of like head down work on anything I'm doing for them, I try to block that out. Uh, And then because I'm only, like I said, operating at about a 20 hour, like 20 to 25 hours a week on client work, um, like actual build client work, uh, that lets me actually keep the rest of the time for a few other things. So this is relatively new because I just wrapped up a really big PR project, which was taking up the rest of my time. Um, But the way that I'm structured or the way that I uh, I have structured it this week and will be moving forward is a, a blend of a few different things. So I really love working on my personal brand. Um, anyone that follows me knows that I, you know, I, I haven't in the last few weeks spent a whole lot of time on social, but uh, I've been a little busy. However, usually I do. And so I like create, creating content. I like making YouTube videos, doing my newsletter, all of which I've put on pause for the last few weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to do that when I have these like major client moments. Uh, it's going to have to happen. But um, I like doing that, right? I like, I like focusing on that. So I want to make sure I keep time for that because that's where all of my new business typically comes from. 
And without even advertising a company yet, I don't have a company website up other than like the one under my Aaron Blasky website. Um, I probably get anywhere from three to 10 new business inquiries every week. And I'm not just exaggerating. <laughs> like there's Damn. a lot, there's a lot of demand out there for like marketing and the personal brand stuff is actually kind of like operating on its own. Like it's just like doing some work, which is great. Um, and then I also do a lot of speaking, you know, and, and stuff like that. But the other piece that I'm super excited about is I'm also um, going to be over the next few weeks announcing um, the that I've joined a, a couple different accelerators across Canada as like an operator in um, residence or an executive in residence. And that's going to become a big part of what I do too, because then I get to Very do like cool. the marketing and consulting, but inside of accelerators and work with a ton of startups. So um, yeah, I want to do, I want to do like client work because it keeps my skills fresh and it keeps me like engaged in strategy. But I also really want to get back into the accelerator space because I just had such a great time at AllSpark. So I love it. Yeah. That's how I structure. Oh, and then I guess I forgot to say, I mean, yes, I keep a small amount of time for the business admin, <laughs> but like, I'll be honest, I'm hiring a VA. She starts April 1st. She's going to take care of all my email, you know, all nice. of this stuff like that. Cool. I have an accountant and literally I said to him, I'm like, I don't care what it costs. I want all the bookkeeping and the accounting covered. Like, I don't want to think about it. I don't even want to have to like engage a CRA. If they send a letter, you're <laughs> dealing with it, you know, like, because I didn't do that the first time around. And honestly, I kicked myself because I hated all of it. You know, I hated the admin. And this time around, I did that. I got a lawyer right away. Like I was like, hey, you're dealing with all the contracts, like everything. And I'm willing to invest in it because I want to set this business up so that I feel, you know, um, like it's a business that's supporting me and my lifestyle and not the other way around. Yeah. I love it. Um, we're we're gonna try to wrap up. I'll uh, I'll check the list of questions. Uh, Jonathan Simon asked uh, more of like a high level question, so I'm I'm curious your take on this. But he 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 was wondering what uh, you wish someone would have prepared you for uh, at the start of your marketing career. So like take us way back to like mm -hmm. before you created that that virtual assistant, like and you went freelance, like you did that first before like working in house. Like what advice would you give yourself like way back? in 2004 yeah that's a good one I think I probably would have started my personal brand I mean I did start it pretty early so I actually like I know I'm saying I should I would have and I actually did <laughs> but I would recommend anyone who's starting a career in marketing to also think about their personal brand as early as possible and like this is one of the things I tell all I mean it's actually like the course that I teach at the university as well is like social and personal branding for students especially because it's so key. I think when you look at a marketing role, you can enter the marketing space as a new grad with not a whole lot in, let's say, your, your, your work experience if you have a very strong personal brand and you've built out a portfolio of your own. That doesn't mean it has to be client work. Like You could literally, your, you yourself can be the portfolio. And that's one of the things I did a lot in the early days is, you know, if when as like things were coming out, like social media and people were selling online courses. Like I existed in a time when that wasn't a thing, you know, and then it was a thing like eBooks were new. Um, and I, instead of just like seeing it and being like, Oh, cool. That looks neat. I actually like jumped in two feet. I built a course. I created eBooks. I figured out ways to make passive revenue online in those really early days. I engaged in affiliate programs. Like I learned everything for myself 
and really led by example. And that led to a lot of companies seeing what I was doing and being like, wow, like I love the marketing you're doing for yourself. Can you do it for me? And that's honestly where a lot of my early clients came from. And I've never applied for a job ever. Like all of the jobs I've ever had in marketing have come from my personal network, my personal brand. Uh, and that's why I'm just so bullish about it. Like if you think if you're going to go into marketing, that needs to be something you start soon. And it's so easy today. Like we have so many tools and, you know, access to things that um, there's just no reason why people wouldn't, you know, or, or couldn't. Yeah. So that. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's I think I you're do. like your proof of that, right? Like you, you just mentioned, like I, I worked in house for four years and then I went freelancing. I just announced it on LinkedIn. And then like, I have like 10 business inquiries every week, but that's, that's like, like not like sheer good luck. No, and like, because yeah. you, you were lucky, right? Like you, you spent a lot of time investing in that personal branding and the community that you built around, uh, you on Twitter and like the other platforms you're on. Mm-hmm. So like it, it didn't just happen by chance. Like you, you built a lot of work in there and that, that kind of leverage came in from that. So yeah. That, that's super yeah. cool. I want to yeah. uh, touch on like maybe a last question before we, we dive into the, the happiness question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a cool question from Michelle on Twitter. Uh, she's at PR is us. And she, she was curious to know uh, what you would say about which marketing roles slash functions are better to hire in-house versus freelance mm. uh, kind of early in, in the startup world. So when you're, you're working with like these accelerators uh, and like mm-hmm. the super early blank slate startups, uh, yeah. what advice do you have on like roles that are okay to, to, to hire for and which should be in-house? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that, and and so like, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give a caveat to this with like, obviously this is going to be biased from my own experiences and like the, you know, and, and what I've done. So, um, other people, you know, may choose to hire very differently. Um, in any of the companies that I've ever worked with, I've always started, um, in-house, like in terms of a startup role with a marketing generalist of some sort. So, Like usually that's the first hire. It could be a senior marketing manager. Maybe it's a marketing, you know, digital marketing manager, marketing specialist, like whatever you want to call them. But that's usually the first hire because what you really need at that stage is just someone who's going to be extremely hands-on, tactical, and like execute. Like, Like that's what you need. You need that more than anything. You do need the strategic thinking as well, but honestly, I've seen I've seen so many startups that just like roll up their sleeves, start getting some work done, even if they don't have a perfectly defined strategy. Like the execution on honestly ends up producing at least results versus having to like get too caught up in the thinking um, side of it. And then I would say like what I'm noticing is a lot of early stage startups that do hire that person when they get to that point where maybe the person that they have has kind of tapped out in terms of their like maybe experience or expertise around the strategy side. That's usually where I see people maybe go outside of the organization to potentially bring in like a consultant or a strategist or, um, you know, maybe it's just like a mentor for the person that's in house. Um, sometimes they'll hire a, a, you know, a more senior marketer, but, um, usually like I find that like they typically hire more generalists before they hire a senior marketer. I was very like, it was very different for me at fellow. Um, I came in actually quite early, uh, to that company as a director of marketing. Um, but it's not, not always common, you know, so it's usually a lot more generalist roles in the beginning. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And then you can, like, I've always outsourced things like 
paid ads is something easy to outsource because, you know, like there's agencies that exist, they have systems, they have processes. It's, it's kind of cookie cutter in some ways, not the campaigns, but like, you know, the application yeah. of the ad is pretty cookie cutter. Um, SEO is another one that's um, been pretty easy to outsource, but you also have to have like someone in-house that can really bridge the gap between like the content, you know, and the SEO, like just like the reason you're doing certain things and the intent. Um, so, but I have outsourced that, uh, graphic design is another one. I don't think maybe startups need a full-time graphic designer. You know, we've borrowed a lot of our product designers in the past and they've given us a bit of their time for marketing. Uh, sometimes I've tried to get them full-time in my team cause I really loved, um, the designer, especially at fellow shout out to Matt. Um, and, uh, you know, I've definitely tried to steal them, but uh, you could outsource the design as well. Um, and then I think like there's other things that are pretty easy, like social media management to a degree. So like you could probably outsource some of the like, you know, posting and the scheduling and maybe the management of the calendar. But like ultimately you want to have that like in-house oversight on the messaging community, you know, like the purpose of it. Um yeah, content writing is another. We've, I've worked with an enormous amount of freelance writers because there's never someone in-house whose job is only to pump out content in the early days, like maybe down the road, yeah. but like I've never had that luxury. It's always been freelancers. So um, yeah, so I think that there's definitely like, in my view, some probably key areas where when I come in, I'm like, we're not going to hire for this in-house today. Um, but I get a lot of, you know, more generalist uh, hires that can kind of touch a bunch of areas and learn and grow in the role. And mm -hmm. then and then they usually end up finding a path that they want to take, like whether that's like more growth or more content or more social and community or whatever it might be. I love it. John, I'll let you ask the last question. Okay. We always ask this of all of our guests. And I think this whole interview is a kind of a good object lesson in how to be happy and successful in your career. So Aaron, <laughs> for our list, for our listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, what are your, your top piece of advice or just your own experience on remaining happy and successful in your career in marketing? Yeah, I love that question. So I think for me, it's two things. One, you have to ditch 100% every other human being's definition of success. Like, throw it out, throw it out. Like, I, w I went through my whole 20s thinking that success was like a big house and the BMW and the designer clothes. And like, trust me, I got the BMW, nobody cared. <laughs> like, nobody <laughs> cared. And guess what? It didn't actually even make me much happier. I loved the car. I mean, it was a sexy little car, but like, you know, it didn't really amount to like an additional amount of happiness. And I think what I realized over time is like, for me, what do I like, what feels successful for me? And so for me, I've identified that as like, I just want financial security. I don't need to be like the richest person. I just want to feel like secure. I want to pay my bills without thinking about them. You know, um, I want to make sure I can put money away for my daughter's education. Uh, I want to have time to spend with her. And when the weather's nice, I want to be able to get out and hike and kayak and like have outdoor adventures and like that that that's success for me like it's simple financial security a house over you know a roof over my head and the ability to outdoor adventure and i think if you like ditch every other definition of success um and focus in solely on like what actually would make you feel successful as a person um i think that goes a long way and then i think not being afraid to have a non-linear path like just go for it like if you want to consult and then you want to take a full-time job and then you want to go back to consulting like me, 
do it. Like there's at the end of the day, like, sure, you know, there's, there's things I think we, we allow ourselves to be held back by. Like, what if people think I'm a flight risk or whatever? But like, honestly, I don't care. You know, like you can't care because it's your life and your career. And, um, and I think it's just, yeah, you have to figure out those definitions for yourself and, and honestly ditch every other stereotype and thing mm-hmm. out there. Cause I'm living proof that like, I'm still here, you know, like I'm still standing. Um, and, and I haven't fully, you know, like I haven't carpet bombed my own, uh, like <laughs> career at this point. So we're, yeah. we're, we're good. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I, I love that advice. Like, you know, ditch the, ditch the, uh, common definition of success, redefine success for yourself and you'll find yourself a whole heck of a lot happier in your career. So that's, that's brilliant advice, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so you. much, Aaron. Um, you're, uh, the floor is yours. If you want to pitch anything, uh, let the listeners know, like, um, <laughs> if you're, you're, you said you, you're building out and like maybe a site for, for the personal brand, but you, you mentioned the accelerator program, like, uh, feel free to pitch anything you want. Yeah. Well, actually, I honestly, like, I actually hate pitching anything because I just like love connecting <laughs> with humans so much. So I would say just like, if you're, you know, if you've listened to this and you still have questions about consulting or even just like fear around taking the leap, um, reach out. Like I can, you know, my Twitter is at Aaron Blasky. I mean, you just like Google my name and you'll find me on one of the many social platforms, but yeah, don't be shy. Like I love questions and honestly, um, they're great. They're great. Like content inspiration for me as well for things like my YouTube or, um, TikTok, which I'm experimenting with right now. Um, yeah. So just reach out. That's awesome. It. Thank you so much, Erin. It was super great. Yeah, thank you.